Good morning. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20? Let me just by way of background share the Apostle Paul is writing to a church, the church at Corinth. This is a community that he knows and knows well. Uh, they're uh, a little over three years old or uh, somewhere around a similar age to our church. Uh, and yet uh, they're experiencing growing pains. This passage, Paul is... Uh, is speaking with them about sexual immorality. So let's hear what he has to say. Paul uh, says this, he says, quoting them, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord, is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins people commit are outside their bodies, but those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, God, therefore honor God with your bodies. That's the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, thank you for this word that we've heard. Lord, I pray um, um, in the things that we're able to talk about today, Lord, will you implant those things in us and the things we're not able to cover, Lord, would you, would you guide us back to, um, guide us back to this passage? Lord, would you shape us? Uh, would you either soften us or strengthen us in the ways that we need to be softened or, or strengthened? Lord, I pray in all these things that your son is honored. In his name I pray. Amen. So if I would have looked at this passage just a few short years ago, I would have thought, okay, let me pray. <laughs> and then I would have prepared a talk on human sexuality. Uh, prepare a talk on the biblical sex ethic. After all, isn't that what the Corinthians are struggling to understand? Isn't that what Paul's addressing here? Well, yes. Um but only on the surface. There is a, a more foundational question that's being addressed here, which is, to whom do we belong? That's the fundamental question. And ask the question, if we know the answer to that, then we will know how to use our bodies. We'll know how to uh, consider the lives, the bodies of others. But more than that, we'll understand how to inhabit this planet. We'll understand uh, how to how to tend to the world that we belong to, and so the answer to the question is there in plain view. The Apostle Paul says, "You don't belong to yourself. The body is meant for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. You're not your own." So, if we want to learn what the disciples learned 
during that Easter tide season in those days immediately following the resurrection. And we want to have our entire lives transformed by the resurrection. And we need to take this in. If you're in Christ, you don't belong to yourself. If you want to experience true freedom, then you need to embrace embrace the doctrine that you are not your own. So let's consider this doctrine. Let's consider this this passage, and let's let's do it along three lines. Let's see the lies that we tell ourselves, and we all do it. Let's see the truth that we need, and let's discover the dignity that is yours as it's offered to us by grace. First, the lie we tell ourselves, the lies we tell ourselves, and we all do it, and it's obvious here. Uh, in verses 12 and 13, we see a series of half-truths being interacted with uh, by the Apostle Paul. He's taking some half-truths that are being uh, posited, that are being flaunted uh, by the, the Corinthian church, and he's interacting with them. He's challenging them on, on them, challenging them on them. And this verse 12 and 13, it's kind of like a little ancient Reddit, Reddit thread. Uh, and, but you can tell that as they talk about uh, their notions of freedom, and freedom is very important in the Christian, uh, in the Christian uh, worldview. It's a significant aspect of the Christian faith. Uh, but we can tell by the way that they flaunt this freedom and the way that Paul interacts with them. that he's doubtful whether or not they have the full picture of freedom. The freedom they profess is less than the freedom that Jesus provides. And so he's interacting with them. And they say things like, hey, we have a right to do anything. Or as it's often translated, all things are lawful. And Paul comments on their comments. And he's saying, okay, you have a right to do anything, but is it beneficial? Meaning, is it helpful to you? Is it helpful to those around you? You have a right to do anything, but are you mastered by it? He's saying, in your pursuit of liberty, in your pursuit of freedom... Is it actually enslaving you? And maybe that's a good definition of what freedom looks like, right? If you're truly free, then it will be good for you and be good for those around you. If you're truly pursuing freedom, then one outworking is that you won't be enslaved by it. Right? So the fundamental lie of this church and maybe the ancient world and the fundamental lie of the modern world is that we belong to ourselves. We have a right to do anything. And here, Paul is saying in, the, in this letter, he's saying it throughout, that when you pursue a life without limitations, what it does is it actually enslaves you. But not only does it enslave you, it alienates you. Not just from yourself, but from the rest of the world. See, the lie of individual autonomy is that it promises a freedom that it can never deliver. It promises freedom, but it actually delivers alienation. When you live as though you're not your own, you alienate yourself from everything around you. And that's why these maturing Christian leaders, though they're the leaders of the church, they come across as interlopers in their community. Because they insist that they don't belong to anyone, they end up minimizing everyone. They minimize the physical uh, needs of others, the, the emotional needs, the spiritual needs of others. We see them diminish their very own bodies. We see them um, take advantage of broken systems that are at work in their culture. They don't understand the relationship between 
their bodies in food, their bodies in the created world, their bodies in sex. Everything is a means to an end because they don't belong to anything. Because they're pursuing a life without limitations. And so nothing is seen as a gift. A gift that's meant to be uh, responsibly stewarded. But everything is a utility to satisfy their own personal urges. Their own primal urges. So they are pursuing a life without uh, limitations, but it actually just imprisons them, enslaves them, and it alienates them from the rest of the world. They're human beings who are actually creating an inhuman environment all around. In Alan Noble's book um, entitled, You Are Not Your Own, he opens it with a really provocative illustration, and that is, uh, what it's like to go to a zoo and what you're actually experiencing. And what is a zoo? A zoo is uh, a habitat that's created by man so that animals, wild animals, can live there. We can go and experience them. And, of course, when we go and experience them, what do we want to experience? We want to experience them walking about. We want to experience them in action. But he says that when we are experiencing them in action, what we're actually ex- what we are actually experiencing is their sickness, their mental sickness, their soul sickness, their body sickness. He's saying what we're experiencing when we see them pacing about, say a lion pacing about in a cage, is something called zucosis. And zucosis is a clinical term that describes a repetitive behavior pattern with no obvious goal or function. So, right, we go there, we want to be entertained, but when we see them pacing about, what he's saying is they're demonstrating psychotic behavior because they're inhabiting a world that they're not actually built for. They're sick. And even though they may have been born into a zoo culture, they're actually not created for a zoo culture. They're not created for that environment. And it doesn't matter how natural it appears. It doesn't matter how Uh, natural the den looks despite how much that lion adapts uh, despite how much that the children of those those animals adapt the lion that we see is not ever going to be the lion that they were intended to be see when we think and we feel and we plan and we spend and we use our bodies and we use the bodies of others as though we are autonomous beings we end up creating an inhuman environment And we end up becoming the people we were not created to be. People filled with anxiety and pacing about and uncertainty. No purpose. Paul says, you are not your own, despite how, uh, you're not your own, despite what the culture says. And no matter how much you fashion your environment to suit your needs, you will remain anxious, pacing about in search of something until you realize that you belong to God. So those are the lies that we tell, and we all do it. So what are we to do? Well, some of us are thinking, wow, this just sounds like it's so complicated. I don't know that I can change. I don't know that I want to. Just keep lying to me, right? I mean, the cure must be worse worse than the disease. I mean, just, just ignorance is bliss. In this instance, it's not. We need a truth. 
and to use the language of the passage, the truth that we need is one in which we, uh, we're raised up out of this false habitat. In order to be truly free, according to Paul's language, we need to be raised. We cannot do that raising on our own. Verse 14 says, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Now, what comes with being raised up out of captivity? Well, the first thing that comes is liberation through a new perspective. We get greater clarity. We get greater understanding. Liberation comes through a new perspective. Second, liberation comes through a new hope. When you're, when you're uh, raised, not only do you get a, a greater clarity and understanding and lay of the land, but you get a greater, uh, you get a liberation of hope in which your, your thoughts, your feelings uh, are, begin to be renewed. Any feelings that you have of, of uh, indifference, know anything uh, about the culture that you're in or, or you know the desire to change uh, those thoughts and feelings you know they're they're you get a new perspective on it any thoughts or feelings of indifference as it relates to God you have a new hope around those things being raised is the start of uh, what's called renewing of the mind so we need to be raised up out of captivity captivity and only then can we experience what is truly free now, here's what's cool is the freedom that Paul is talking about by being raised is not just a freedom in the distant future, but it's a freedom that's experienced by Paul, by Christians now. Look in verse 14, it says this, By his power God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. He will raise us also. Verse 15 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? So what does that mean? It means on the one hand, Paul is reminding the church of Corinth of the liberation that will happen. It will happen. They will be raised. But on the other hand, that liberation has already happened. Your bodies are members of Christ. So being raised has not yet happened, and yet it's already happened. Because you're members of a body that's been raised. What does Galatians 2.20 says? Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live by faith, I live in, uh, excuse me, now the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a new perspective. It's a new hope. That's the truth we need. We need to be raised. We know that we'll be raised in the future because Christ was raised now. But because Christ was raised now, we have to remember we've been raised already. And that, of course, brings us to the paradox of Christianity, which is true liberty. Having been raised from the dead, you're free. But having been raised from the dead, you're now free to do something that you would never choose to do otherwise. And that is, like Christ, you're free to serve. You're free to serve. Isn't it amazing that as liberated as Christ was as the Son of God, that he chose to serve? That's not a coincidence. The Holy Spirit says that, 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 that excuse me, the Holy Spirit, when, when it's united to the, 
the soul. It doesn't just make us holy. But it fills us with the spirit of the one who came to seek and to save the lost. The spirit of the one who came to serve and not be served. The spirit of the one who says, though I am free from all men, yet I have made myself servant unto all. That's the spirit of the Easter people. That's the great paradox of the Christian life. Christians are free and called to servitude. They're free and they're called to servitude. So how do we go ahead and live like that? Well, it's helpful to know that it's not something we just believe, but it's actually something that we're called to live into by faith. Called to live into by faith. And that is part of being raised up. Is that by faith, which is not an easy thing, we're able to follow and grow. And, you know, faith is, is uh, you know, one of the elements and aspects of Christian maturity. Right? So it's one thing to simply believe. But it's another thing just to, to have our belief raised, to have our faith activated. So years ago, um, a friend of mine gave me a, a helpful illustration around uh, what it looks like to have your belief become faith, an active faith in which you're processing the world and thinking through uh, what what's coming ahead and how you, how you function in the world, the decisions that you make, looking around the world, recognizing your relationship to everything, how you live by faith in the Son of God, right? So he says, he says you know, consider uh, object permanence and the ways that babies develop. Uh, the, the understanding, though, that those, though I can't, Though somebody may not be right in front of me, I, I, I know they're around. I know they still exist. Right? So when somebody plays peekaboo with a baby, the babies get a kick out of the fact that when their hand, you know, your hands are in front of your face, all of a sudden you disappear. But then all of a sudden you reappear. Now, whether they actually think that you've vanished from the world or not, we, we can't say. Right? But they're developing an understanding uh, that is that if the parent is not seen, they're still present. See, as a child matures and develops object permanence, they recognize that even if that parent is not in view, that they're still around. So if you consider the early disciples and the way that they went from belief to faith, they went from belief to faith because over those 40 days, Jesus kept appearing and reappearing. He kept solidifying his permanence with them. He was training them, activating them in their faith so that when he ascended and they couldn't see him, they knew he was still present in the world. So Easter people live with that understanding and they process the world out of their faith. They serve the world out of their faith. They don't tell half-truth lies and innuendos out of their faith. They apply the word of God to their life out of faith. You know what else they do out of faith? They flee sexual immorality because they know that their bodies are not their own. Let me just show some examples of what it would look like to flee sexual immorality. First, you look in the you understand prostitution from a biblical perspective. And you recognize that prostitution 
is a poor substitute for the real thing, which is marriage. You know, prostitution is I want to pay now with no strings attached for a physical pleasure that I that I uh, should only experience in marriage. But I don't want to I don't want to have that commitment. I don't want to have the vulnerability. I want to be free. And so in the pursuit of being free, you enter into a relationship with a person which is enslaving to them and enslaving to you. It's a poor substitute for the real thing. So we all know that if uh, wherever there's a culture of prostitution, there is a culture of abuse and violence and racism and misogyny. Can't imagine a worse existence for somebody who is created in the image of God. And so when you're raised, right, you live your an activated belief when you when you have an active faith you're able to say that is a system in which i'm going to flee i'm not going to i'm not going to enter into systemic oppression but what does it mean to flee right fleeing is interesting because it's not necessarily uh, a real heady theological concept it's a real primal concept and that is to say I think the Apostle Paul is saying, don't, don't try and reason with sexual sin. Run from sexual sin. Run from it. You know, the most dangerous animal, I think, uh, to face is a bear, right? A bear can outrun you, can outswim you, can outclimb you. Bears have the strength of 20 men. You don't want to get cozy with a bear. What do you do? I don't know what you're supposed to actually do. But if I see a bear, my instinct is to flee. And that would be a right instinct. So those of us who are struggling with sexual immorality, flee, flee. By faith, flee. But also recognize the dignity that is yours in Christ. Sexual immorality is a pale substitute for the love of God. It is a pale substitute for what God actually promises you. What does it say there? It says in the passage, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Oh, my Lord. Look at the language that this passage says, uses. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Now, if this were in another context, I might read other things into it. But this is using the language of buying in the context of talking about having just talked about prostitution. It's staggering. And yet, I think we need to just learn two basic things about it. That says something about us, and it says something about God. Now let me let me just back up for a second. Maybe you're a person who uh, is familiar with trafficked people, and all of a sudden you're saying, "Wait a second, are you telling me that God is going to do do to His people what what men have done to women all these years, and 
Uh, how insensitive is this language? And I, I'm right there with you. But I think it actually is more profound than we can imagine. Because see, God buys us, buys his people, not with money, not with gold or silver, and not temporarily. He lays his life down for his people for all eternity. He gives, he pays by his blood. See, in the Old Testament, prostitutes were often considered uh, symbols of God's people, that they were faithless. The prime example, uh, I shouldn't say, the, the prime example would be Gomer. Now, we don't know if Gomer was actually a prostitute or she was a person of sexual uh, addiction. But God says, marry her to Hosea. Marry her. And of course, Hosea was, that was a heartbreaking relationship for Hosea. But he does. Why? Because it's a picture of God's love for his people. It's a picture of what he's actually going to do one day. But it also says something about us. So it says something about God, his commitment to his people. It says something about us. And that is, is that we tell ourselves lies, that we're faithful or we're not. It tells us that we have wandering hearts, that we look for any place to show us or provide for us the kind of adulation or attention, a kind of identity that we need. But uh, we do it at, at the cost of rejecting God. We suppress the truth about God. And we look for love that we can, we can only... We look for love in any other place except for in the one who can actually give it to us. And yet God says, I've come for you. I've come to buy you for all eternity with my blood. And of course, you know, that's not just an ancient story, but that, that really is a story that continues to resonate even now. You know, the most popular romantic comedy of all time is Pretty Woman. And Pretty Woman is basically a story of a woman who was bought for a week so that she can be utilized by a high-powered businessman. But, of course, we all know what happens. They fall in love. She, he comes to understand himself better through her. She becomes, realizes what a dig, how much dignity she actually has. And she refuses to have that kind of relationship anymore, right? But, so we know the story of Pretty Woman, but isn't it true that all of us, in some sense, feel like we're just waiting for someone to come in and, and show us uh, a love that, that dignifies every undignified thing we've ever done? To show us a love that, that um, says, we're worth it, that I laid my life down for you forever and then just that basic principle jesus is saying i am the one who's you've been searching for i'm the one who's coming for you i'm your great love do you see what i would do to make you mine so the lies we tell is that god doesn't love us but he does the thing we need to uh, know is that we've been raised with him because he's already 
purchased us. He already calls you his bride. The church, Easter people, live by faith out of that reality. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Lord, would you continue to teach us these things? And Lord, as we reflect on sexual immorality in our own lives and in this world, we pray that you would heal us so that people aren't hurt anymore. I pray this in Jesus' name.